Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today, Abe, Moon, Xi, and Putin. President Trump's big meetings on the world stage. Has this big Asia trip changed America's position in the world? We are not going to let the United States be taken advantage of anymore. And for the better or worse, Richard Haas, Ian Bremmer, and Elise Hugh will join me to discuss. Also, Saudi Arabia's crackdown on corruption. Princes and top officials arrested and kept at the Ritz Garden. Saudi officials say this corruption has cost the country at least $100 billion. What is going on? We will explore. And a melee outside the Turkish ambassador's residence in Washington last spring. It resulted in U.S. indictments of 15 Turkish security officials, bringing relations between the two nations to a new low. I will talk to Turkey's Prime Minister, who met with Vice President Pence this week. But first, here's my take. The news out of Saudi Arabia has been startling. A country famous for its stability to the point of stagnation is watching a 32-year-old crown prince arrest his relatives, freeze their bank accounts, and dismiss them from key posts. But on closer examination, it shouldn't be that surprising. Mohammed bin Salman is now applying to Saudi Arabia what has become the new standard operating procedure for strongmen around the world. The formula was honed by Vladimir Putin. First, focus on and amplify foreign threats so as to rally the country around the regime and give it extraordinary powers. Putin did this with the Chechen war and the danger of terrorism. Then move against rival centers of influence within the society, often using anti-corruption, which in Russia meant the oligarchs, who were at the time more powerful than the state itself. Then talk more about the need to end corruption, reform the economy, and provide benefits for ordinary people. Putin was able to succeed on that last front, largely because of the quadrupling of oil prices over the next decade. Finally, control the media through formal and informal means. Russia has gone from having a thriving free media in 2000 to a level of state control that is effectively similar to the Soviet Union. Naturally, not every element of this formula applies elsewhere. Perhaps Prince Mohammed will prove to be a genuine reformer. But the basic approach for political success that he is following is similar to that applied in countries around the world. In his 2012 book, The Dictator's Learning Curve, William Dobson presciently explained that the new breed of strongmen around the world have learned a set of tricks to maintain control that are far more clever and sophisticated than in the past. Rather than forcibly arrest members of a human rights group, today's most effective despots 
deployed tax collectors or health inspectors to shut down dissident groups. Laws are written broadly, then used like a scalpel to target the groups the government deems a threat. Dobson, however, did end the book expressing optimism that in many countries people were resisting and outmaneuvering the dictators. Yet what's happened since he wrote the book is depressing. Instead of the despots being influenced by Democrats, it is the Democrats who are moving up the learning curve. Consider Turkey, a country that in the early 2000s seemed on a firm path toward democracy and liberalism, anchored in a desire to become a full-fledged member of the European Union. Its ruler, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has eliminated almost all obstacles to total control. He has defanged the military and the bureaucracy, launched various kinds of tax and regulatory actions against opponents in the media, and declared one potential opposition group, the Gulenists, to be terrorists. The rulers of the Philippines and Malaysia appear to be copying from that same playbook. Now, of course, this is not the picture of democracy everywhere, but these tendencies can be spotted in far-flung areas. In countries like India and Japan, which remain vibrant democracies in most respects, there are elements of this new system creeping in. A nationalism, a chauvinism, populism, increasing measures to intimidate and neuter the free press. In America, Donald Trump, for his part, has threatened NBC, CNN, and other outlets with various forms of government action. He has attacked judges and independent agencies. He has disregarded long-established democratic norms. So perhaps even in America, somebody seems to be moving up this learning curve. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. President Trump is in Manila right now, the last stop on his dozen-day five-stop tour of Asia. The most controversial aspect of his trip so far were, of course, his chats with President Putin. After them, Trump told reporters that he really believed uh, Putin when he told him he didn't meddle in the U.S. elections. Later, Trump said he believes the U.S. intelligence community, which, of course, says Russia did interfere. So lots to talk about with today's panel. Elise Hugh is an international correspondent for NPR. She covered many stops of the president's trip. Ian uh, Bremer was in Nada, uh, Da Nang, Vietnam, for the president's stop there. Ian is the president of the Eurasia Group. And Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of A World in Disarray. Um, Richard, how do you explain the Putin thing? Um, it feels as though Donald Trump just can't stop himself from saying that he agrees more with Putin than almost any Western leader? Well, the president gets points for consistency, and that <laughs> might be about it. For several years now, he has been sanguine, sympathetic, supportive of, of Russia and, and, and Mr. Putin. And even though he tried to correct it at his most recent stop by saying it's important to work with Russia on some of these issues, he's basically wrong. You cannot, you should not give Russia a pass anytime it violates the basic norms of international order, whether it's interfering in our elections, whether it's taking Crimea, whether it's using force indiscriminately in Syria. So what he did is simply wrong in foreign policy. And it's also wrong, I think, just in terms of basic uh, morality. Uh, Elise, other than this, the president actually stayed pretty much on script. It was actually striking to listen to Donald Trump reading from teleprompters, doing the, the handshakes. 
you know, mostly no tweets or certainly no controversial ones. Was that how he was received in Asia? Right. Well, at the top level, of course, there were concerns um, that there might be a trade war accidentally launched by tweets or um, going off script in China, and that was avoided. And also there were no major breaches of uh, protocol. You know, uh, Trump did have some trouble reading off a prompter in South Korea, uh, forming some sentences that weren't quite sentences and things like that, but really no breaches of protocol either. And so until he careened off script uh, on the Putin question, the, the Asia trip was largely a success. Um, Ian, the part of it, though, that struck me was Trump seemed quite deferential almost toward China. And the way it was seemed to be almost being read by people was uh, Trump was ceding to China a kind of more dominant role. He was asserting a narrow American interest. She was asserting these larger global interests. And this comes at a time, as you've pointed out, in time where China, you know, China is both uh, more ambitious and appears quite successful. Look, in my view, in my entire lifetime, there have been two speeches that have really changed the global order. One is when Gorbachev dissolved the Soviet Union. And the second is Xi Jinping two weeks ago when he said China publicly is ready to become a superpower. It, that's not been played very much in the United States, but in APEC and Asia this week, that's what people are talking about. They're talking about the importance of Xi Jinping. And the, the presence of the American president was interesting in terms of, is he going to blow North Korea up or is he going to make missteps? But it didn't have much impact. He was signing some deals. He said nice things to the Chinese. He appreciated the big party. But he wasn't doing anything. Meanwhile, the Asians were going ahead and signing trade deals without the United States. The Chinese are writing big checks and developing architecture without the United States. So if anything, that's kind of the story here. And it seemed as though, you know, with China, Trump has sort of reversed himself. He seemed like he was, you know, during the campaign, he was tough on China. And now much more sympathetic, Richard. Uh, again, giving China a pass. But I think when historians write about this trip, it's not going to be about the Putin comments. It's not going to be about the distractions back here in the United States. It's going to be that the United States unilaterally essentially is abdicated. We have taken ourselves out of the future of Asia to a large degree in terms of geoeconomics by not being part of things, economic, and not being part of the trade agreement. And the idea that you can be a part of things strategically in the military sense, but not in the economic sense, doesn't wash. Alliances are full-fledged. 360-degree relationships. So I actually think when the history is written, it won't simply be about China stepping forward. This will be, yet again, the United States stepping back. And the president continues to have, I think, a distorted view of the pluses and minuses uh, of, of any trade agreement. And we are going to pay an economic price for that, Fareed, and we're also going to pay a real strategic price. She, she the big winner um, from, from what you could tell? If you spend any time in Beijing, any time in Shanghai, which I'm sure both of you have, um, it's one belt, one road everywhere. There's a real sense of a clear vision coming out of China um, where there isn't a counterweight uh, coming in from America. And so I think that is the big concern. And of course, that gives Xi the win. There's also another piece of it that strikes me very briefly, the, the Duterte uh, uh, you know, visit. Uh, Trump is going to talk to the president of the Philippines. Uh, and of course, it shouldn't, uh, it, shouldn't it, it shouldn't neuter the relationship between the United States and the Philippines. But the American president standing up for human rights uh, and criticizing human rights abuse has, has historically been a good thing. It's been a kind of marker. Right. And and Trump clearly has no intention of doing that. Well, let's keep in mind the U.S. relationship with the Philippines was deteriorating significantly under Obama before Trump became president. America was losing a lot of influence in this part of the world then 
though Obama was much more consistent on human rights. Trump has made very clear that this is all transactional for him. He is still playing a pretty status quo role in terms of the security side, as opposed to the economic trade side, as Richard said, where the Americans really have abdicated. And in Southeast Asia, that's still an important balancing role. I think we saw this in Vietnam. We're going to see this in the Philippines. Don't go away. When we come back, another day, another controversial tweet. President Trump called North Korea's leader short and fat. Will that help resolve the crisis in North Korea? We will give you our expert opinion when we come back. Despite a busy schedule in Asia, Donald Trump still found time to tweet, why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? Oh, well, I try so hard to be his friend and maybe someday that will happen. He then confirmed that a friendship between the two of them was in fact possible. I want to bring back today's panel, Elise Hugh, Ian Bremmer, and Richard Haas. Richard, the reference was, of course, to the fact that I think it was two weeks ago, the North Koreans called uh, Trump a dotard. Did you know what the word dotard meant? Uh, the honest answer is no. I'd never heard of it. We looked it up in the dictionary, found some Shakespearean references <laughs> to it, and clearly uh, the rather thin-skinned <laughs> occupant of the uh, Oval Office uh, had been nursing a grudge uh, for several weeks now. And uh, this is not classic diplomacy. Let me just say, you asked the question, which I assume was rhetorical for me, about whether this will help us solve the North Korean problem. It's not immediately apparent that it will. <laughs> but uh, Elise, it's fair to say, though, the big news policy-wise uh, out of the, this, the, this trip that uh, Trump has taken is that he has actually softened his position on Asia, which I must confess I had always predicted he would, by which I mean the threats, the fire and fury, the, there, there was no military option. It was pretty clear. And he seemed to have dialed it back in various ways. He certainly dialed it back rhetorically when he was in Japan and in Seoul. Um, and now there's more and more talk of a possible other way to get to the negotiating table, possibly by, um, wait, by ways of a 60-day freeze um, on any provocations. I don't know when that clock would actually start, and I assume that clock hasn't started yet, but there hasn't been uh, any sort of provocation from North Korea now since September 15th. Um, and it sounds like Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and his top North, Korean, uh, North Korea official, Joseph Yoon, are talking about or floating this notion of a freeze. Ian, what do you think? Well, two quick things. One is I'm glad he decided to wait on his tweet until after he had left Japan and South Korea so that Kim Jong-un might not be tempted to kind of, you know, do a test there in the region. I think Trump did probably think about that. Uh, but beyond that, there's another big thing that changed here, which is that he said that the Russians could really be helpful. The Chinese have been helpful. The Russians could be helpful, but haven't been. You know why? Because fake news and the Democrats are work and Mueller are working so hard to stop Trump from being able to work with Putin. This is a, you know, sort of behind the, the a, a, a backhand way of Trump uh, quieting down the North Korea issue by blaming other people. And I think that's an easy way for him to stop talking about fire and fury. He's going to blame the domestics. And that, that works for him, frankly. Uh, Richard, do you think that there's a solution here in some version of what Elise was talking about, a kind of freeze for freeze? And does it have to be, you know, Joshua Ramo at Kissinger has been uh, kind of uh, proposing this idea of broadening the, 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 the issue to make it a little bit more about non-proliferation, maybe in Asia, maybe beyond. Is there something there? or how, what, what is the way to make everybody be willing to kind of stand down from, you know, what the, everyone is in a box now. How do you yeah. get out of that box and 
start talking? Well, I think denuclearization remains a long-term goal, just not the immediate goal. And one can imagine interim arrangements, either a freeze on testing, maybe later a freeze on production of nuclear warheads and missiles. And what the United States has to decide is what we would be prepared to offer in exchange, say, as a first step, for a freeze on testing. If we're not going to cancel, and we shouldn't, our military exercises, do we have a formal end to the Korean War, which has never had just that? Are we prepared to change what we do in the way of sanctions? Maybe even articulate certain incentives for North Korea if they were to do uh, certain things. So the United States has to flesh out essentially a diplomatic position and be willing to take as a first step something less than the solution of the, of the problem. At least it's, it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that in South Korea, um, the funny thing is even Trump's provocations, Kim Jong-un's provocations, the market will keep, stock market will keep going up. There is a tendency to believe that there isn't going to be a war. Uh, and they very much do not want American military action, right? Absolutely. I get the question a lot, you know, what's it like in Seoul? Because especially when the rhetoric ramps up, people get nervous here in the United States and uh, in other parts of the world. But really in Seoul, life goes on as normal. And I'm always saying, you know, everything's fine. This is the big K-pop hit of the summer or whatever it is um, that's going on. Because they've lived with the North that's Korean right. threat it for normalized. decades. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to just, this relates, uh, Richard, since so much of what will make the North Korean crisis more manageable is diplomacy. You as a sitting president of the Council on Foreign Relations have, you know, in your capacity as, a, as an analyst and as a uh, public intellectual, you called for Rex Tillerson to resign. Why? I thought the president put the secretary of state in an untenable position when he was meeting with his Chinese counterpart several weeks ago and he disparaged his diplomatic efforts. More recently, he's undermined the secretary of state at every turn in the Middle East. Secretary of state's trying to work out a deal between the Saudis and Gutter and the White House is undermining that. I think, though, the secretary of state has made a bad situation worse. This focus on reducing the size of the State Department staff. Quite honestly, this, this is a rounding error for Reid and the size of the U.S. budget. And look at the diplomatic challenges this administration faces, including in South Korea. Why don't we have a, an ambassador there? So any savings we get are irrelevant. We face as difficult a diplomatic inbox as any administration has ever faced in modern times. Yet this Secretary of State seems focused on reducing the diplomatic capacity of his own department. I simply don't think that is wise. And, and back to the point you were making, Ian, when I was in Singapore uh, a week ago, uh, what they were telling me is that every international and regional meeting we go to, the Chinese now outnumber the Americans. They are there and they are better briefed. They have, and they come with specific ideas, policy proposals and money. The Americans are absent. The, the, the State Department is weak. They're getting better, there's no question. I mean, let's not forget about the fact there are lots of countries around the world that aren't happy about the idea of the Chinese being dominant. Certainly the Indians, certainly Japanese, and of course, Japan's relationship with the United States is better now under Trump than it was before, and a lot of the Europeans. But they're by themselves. The Americans were leading, they were cohering, that's gone. And you don't feel it in the United States because we've got Canada, Mexico, and two big bodies of water. But when you travel to Asia, you really feel the absence of the United States. You feel the absence of the State Department. And look, this is the first time, I think, in history that a, sit a sitting head of the Council of Foreign Relations called for the resignation of the sitting head, uh, Secretary of State. Uh, th there's a reason for that. It's because it's such a unique circumstance that we're facing, not just in the U.S., but in the world right now. All right. We will have to have you guys back to see if uh, Rex Tillerson takes Richard Hodges' advice. <laughs> Next on GPS, princes and top officials under arrest at the Ritz-Carlton. What is really going on in Saudi Arabia in a moment?
The events in Saudi Arabia over the last week or so have been truly astonishing. In a world without President Trump, this story would have dominated the headlines. Last Saturday, the heir apparent in the kingdom, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, ordered the arrest of dozens of princes, top officials and businessmen. The complaint was corruption, which the kingdom says cost $100 billion. This is an odd charge since most observers would say that the kingdom of Saudi Arabia runs on patronage, kickbacks and graft. Among those arrested was Prince Al-Walid, a well-known billionaire businessman and past guest on this program. And then there's this. This week, Saudi Arabia accused Lebanon of declaring war on its kingdom. And Hezbollah has accused Saudi Arabia of declaring war on Lebanon. So what is going on? Ali Shahabi is a Saudi national who serves as the executive director of the D.C.-based think tank, the Arabia Foundation. Ali, it seems to me the, the first part, the, the, the anti-corruption uh, uh, stuff, is a, is a consolidation of power for Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And it appears like the one that Xi Jinping did, the anti-corruption plan, like Putin uh, when he went after the oligarchs. This means that Saudi Arabia now has one very powerful ruler, correct? Farid, I think there's a misconception about that. Because the consolidation of power took place in June, when Prince Mohammed bin Salman was appointed crown prince. When he, once he was appointed crown, crown prince, game over. Uh, they, there were no centers of power that could dispute that. His succession would be automatic among, after the passing of the present king. So it is not so much a consolidation of power as two things. First of all, the issue of corruption, as you mentioned before, is something that has plagued the kingdom for many, many years. It's but, not just I mean, corruption. But, but let me put it this way. He just bought a $500 billion yacht himself. Yes. I presume that didn't come out of his salary well, as crown prince. I will tell there you. There is no distinction between the, 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 the wealth of the country and the wealth of the royal family. So how can you even talk about corruption? I will tell you that because that story came out of a New York Times article about a year ago, which actually is factually incorrect. Now, does he have a yacht? He has a yacht. The question okay, is not... Maybe it's 400 well, million. Well, it's, it's actually uh, substantially less, but that's not the point. The point is not can there be one crown prince and one king and, uh, and one yacht. The question in Saudi Arabia was that they were the equivalent of, you know, 10 kings, 50 deputy kings and 500 assistant kings. So that's what I mean. It's a consolidation. So, well, it's a consolidation of entitlement because the, 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 it has been estimated that if you want to call them elite entitlement and privilege has been costing the, the kingdom somewhere between 10 to 30 percent of its budget. So it's not just historical corruption. It's corruption going forward. So the point so is that the, the end circle of a patronage of, system. Exactly. The circle of, 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 of entitlement has to be made much smaller. And the way to do that is through shock treatment. Because, for example, the Crown Prince has been talking for two years on television that this has to end. We are not going to accept it. But, you know, elites give up privileges with a lot of difficulty. Why Al-Walid? Explain that one. Well, we will have to see what this. The rumor mill is that it had something to do with the fact that his portfolio, he, he had, was highly leveraged. He'd borrowed a lot of money against his foreign holdings. In 2008, um, you know, some people say, and again, this is a rumor we'll have to see, that his firm was nearly bankrupt. But I feel like it also adds Sorry, to the I mean, shock just, value. It right? does, of course. Well, I mean, the point is that his firm was bankrupt and that he, with the cooperation of the then Minister of Finance, got the government to bail him out in an unfair manner. Of course it does. Now, the, the, there are about 200 people have been arrested. 
The names that have been leaked have been high-profile names. The point is to send that message that if those high-profile people are no longer immune, if the biggest names in the land are no longer immune, then nobody will be immune. And, and I can tell you that that has, has had the effect of changing behavior immediately. Today, if you're a government official looking to sign a contract, you're going to look over your shoulder. And it's that shock therapy that is so essential to changing the behavior of the elite. So in a way, it's a revolution from above, you see, which will protect, frankly, Saudi elites in the future from a revolution from below. So the one place you haven't seen the shock therapy is on the religious establishment. The Crown Prince has talked about, a, you know, wanting a more moderate Islam. And in the past, when I've been in Saudi Arabia, and I've, I've said to people, why don't you get the religious establishment to be more moderate, to end this kind of extremism? They would say, well, we can't do that because, you know, they have their own power. Well, it now is clear that the crown prince has total power, and it's always seemed to me that the religious establishment was, was you know, was a, well, they were salaried employees of the state, as it were. Why doesn't he use shock therapy on the Wahhabi establishment and tell them but to get, very, you know, get with the program? And Exactly. He did exactly that over a month ago. one speech, but he's not done no, anything. No, 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 no. He arrested 40 to 70 clerics. A, a, about six weeks ago, exactly this was done to the religious establishment. 40 to 60 clerics were arrested, including one of the clerics who had 14 million followers on Twitter, one of the biggest names. So exactly this policy. So you expect to see a moderation of the... Of the Absolutely. Now, the, to moderate the culture, to moderate your understanding of Islam, this is a long-term process. It's much quicker to stop corruption and it's much quicker to stop elite entitlement. But the process and the shock therapy actually preceded the shock therapy. The problem was that when he arrested the clerics six, seven weeks ago, and this was about three weeks before he allowed women to drive, which the clerics had been resisting as a wedge issue, because that they, they considered that sort of the last bastion of conservatism. And he crushed that. So the things that he's been doing have been taken with a lot of cynicism by, by analysts and talking heads in America. They're not giving me the benefit of the doubt. If you will allow me, I'd like to comment on your, 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 your introductory you've got, statement. You've got 45 seconds. Okay. The book that, that you talked about, you know, that talked about the playbook, Putin's playbook, for example. As I said, he consolidated his power already. So he doesn't need to do this to consolidate power. He needs to do it to re-educate elites that their period of entitlement and privilege is over. Well, now we have a little bit more time, so I will ask you about Lebanon. Um, very briefly, just explain what is going on. It seems as though this is, a, this is part of a Saudi-Iranian Cold War being played out in, in Lebanon. Each side wants to influence Lebanon. No, it's not. It, it, the question is that Lebanon has become a state that is captured by Hezbollah. And Hezbollah, frankly, has morphed into a pure terrorist organization. So Lebanon is controlled by a non-state actor that, is, that has become Iran's subcontractor. Uh, to use in the Arab world. So Hezbollah has been working to, in, in Syria, helping you know, kill hundreds of thousands. It's also been operating in Yemen uh, as a subcontractor for Iran. So the point is to expose what Lebanon has turned into, which is a Hezbollah-controlled state with a veneer of respectability. All right. I asked you tough questions. You answered very, very, very well. That is a very important Saudi perspective. Next on GPS, how the Republicans have betrayed the legacy of their secular saint, Ronald Reagan when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. Republicans worship at the altar of Ronald Reagan, and they admire him more than anything else, perhaps because he presided over a massive tax reform in 1986. Even Donald Trump, 
who doesn't often praise his Republican predecessor, says he is a fan of Reagan's and wants to follow his lead on taxes. We need a tax code that is simple, fair, and easy to understand. Trump is right. American taxpayers and businesses spend 8.9 billion hours a year, that's billion, doing taxes, costing the economy $409 billion, according to the Tax Foundation. But the current Republican tax plan looks little like Reagan's. Under Reagan, a bipartisan Congress greatly simplified the tax code, cutting out scores of credits, deductions, and loopholes. A sign of their success? Special interests were furious about losing tax breaks. Take, for example, this brash New York real estate developer. This tax uh, act was just an absolute catastrophe for the country, for the real estate industry, and I really hope that something can be done. The current Republican plan is being pushed as a radical simplification of the tax code, but it actually adds to its complexity. Take one glaring example among many. It should have been easy to kill altogether the carrot interest provision that favors hedge funds and private equity companies. But the House plan merely makes the loophole a little less gaping. A hedge fund manager said to me, my tax accountants and lawyers are going to be delighted. Now there's even more work for them. Another instance, there's a whole new scheme that will affect 95% of America's businesses. Wealthy Americans who own such businesses, like President Trump, will get a big tax break. Except if you own the business and work for it, you get a smaller tax break. Except to further complicate things, you can make the case for special treatment and get a more generous tax break. Again, the accountants and lawyers must be salivating. The simplest proof of the current plan's complexity is this. The 1986 bill got rid of so many loopholes and deductions that despite a massive cut in rates, it was actually designed not to increase the deficit at all. The current plan will explode the deficit by at least $1.5 trillion, and probably more because of all the fuzzy math involved in predicting growth. Republicans had been saying that after the reforms, most Americans would be able to file their taxes on a postcard. They have backed away from that claim because now it would have to be a postcard with pages and pages of footnotes. The Reagan plan also made tax rates for most kinds of income, from earnings to capital gains to dividends, roughly similar, if not the same. This is in keeping with basic free market philosophy that says that the government should not pick winners and losers. Well, the current Republican tax plan is filled with choices for winners and losers. Big businesses are best. Small ones are also good, except if they're law firms and doctor's offices. Most nonprofits are totally exempt, but some nonprofits and colleges are not. Republicans keep saying they have a once-in-a-generation opportunity for tax reform. They are right, and they are squandering it. Next on GPS, Turkey's Prime Minister came to the U.S. this week to work on warming relations between the two nations. He met with Vice President Pence, and then he talked to me exclusively. That interview when we come back. July 15, 2016. The world watched that night an organized effort try to take down the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. In the ensuing purge, almost 200,000 people have faced some sort of judicial action, including almost 50,000 arrested, included our army generals, judges, prosecutors, journalists, police officers, and more. 16 months after the coup attempt, Turkey remains in a declared state of emergency. Officials in Ankara accuse U.S.-based cleric Fethullah Gulen of masterminding the plot. 
and U.S.-Turkish relations, already fragile before the coup attempt, have taken a sharp downturn in the aftermath. Turkish security forces are accused of beating up protesters in the streets of Washington, D.C. earlier this year, as President Erdogan looked on. And last month, Turkey arrested a Turkish employee of the U.S. consulate in Istanbul. In an attempt to improve relations, Turkey's Prime Minister Binali Yildirim traveled to America this week to meet with Vice President Mike Pence. He talked to me exclusively afterwards. Mr. Prime Minister, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. <clears throat> why are Turkish-American relations at... It, it, why is there so much tension between the two countries? We're meant to be allies, right? Yes, uh, <clears throat> uh, Turkey and United States. Uh, allies and partner, but uh, nowadays, unfortunately, our relation is not at the level which we desire. But why is it? People look at Turkey. In Washington, I know people look at Turkey and they say, uh, you are now buying weapons from the Russians. You are a NATO ally buying weapons from the Russians. You are, as I say, threatening to say it to the United States, you cannot use the, the, the air base. You're opposed to U.S. efforts uh, to... Uh, fight ISIS because they involve using some Kurdish forces. Yeah. There seem to be a series <coughs> of areas where Turkey is turning away from the West on its foreign policy. Well, we have a couple of reasons. As you mentioned, that there is no single reason why the situation is like this. Uh, it comes through last uh, one and a half years. If we go back uh, 15th of July, year 2016, we had an awful coup attempt in Turkey. Our parliament building bombed and our uh, citizens, 250, were killed and more than 2,000 injured. So uh, the, the man who is responsible uh, on this coup attempt, Fatullah Kulen, he's living in United States. So we are very uh, sure that he's the behind of this coup attempt. So we required United States to uh, hand over this terrorist cult to the Turkish government. And we provided enormous amount of uh, documents and proof, but uh, after one and a half years behind, we don't have any any development, any signal that is going uh, going to be uh, delivered. So, did you did you hope that the Trump administration would extradite Gulen because Michael Flynn? was working with the Turkish government, for the Turkish government, mm -hmm. to prom and, and argued publicly for that. He wrote an op-ed on election day asking for the extradition of Gulen. You know, we, we expected that this will happen. Had Michael Flynn uh, provided you with any assurance that it would happen? No, 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 no one has. We are not dealing with the Michael Flynn. We are dealing with the, the government of uh, United States. Well, he, he was national security advisor. I, I, he, and after that, he left. I mean, we are mainly uh, dealt with the Minister of Justice, 
both countries, Minister of Justice of Turkey and United States. So they were in communication, they are still in communication to uh, provide some progress on that matter. So my sources in Washington tell me that the evidence that the Turkish government has provided is not particularly strong, is <laughs> not conclusive, and that they, they argue if it was strong, they would have made it public, that, that in fact well, the, the evidence well, is very sparse. Yeah, they, we, we you hear, hear this too. We hear this kind of argument, but uh, uh, what I can tell you, uh, Mr. Farid, uh, you know, July 15, we have a coup attempt. And similar happened to 9-11 in United States. When the President Bush announced that U.S. was under attack, that Turkey was the first country to offer to help and sending army to Afghanistan. We didn't ask who is behind of this. The United States said this is Al-Qaeda behind of this, uh, this attack and Al-Qaeda is responsible. Nobody asked United States, is there any evidence that Al-Qaeda did so. Let me ask you about what is happening inside Turkey. Um, right. When I would first visit Turkey when Prime Minister Erdogan was Prime Minister, right. um, he was doing impressive reforms. The European yes. Union would praise Turkish government every few months for the amount of legal reforms, economic reforms. Um, he talked about People in Turkey talked about how Turkey wanted to be a member of the European Union right. and they were strengthening democracy and liberalism. In the last four or five years, since maybe 2013, when there were protests um, in, in uh, Istanbul, by every objective independent group that measures these things, Turkish democracy has weakened, civil liberties have weakened, freedom of the press has weakened, you have cases against uh, independent media. The um, uh, people talk about the way in which the judiciary has been um, uh, politicized. What has happened, in your view? What? This why is, did this turn take place? This is uh, this is a perception rather than reality. Believe me. Because of this uh, Gulen organization. They are uh, lobbying a lot. But look, Freedom House is an independent, non-governmental agency that ra ranks countries, and Turkey is ranking on civil liberties, on protections of press, on protection of opposition, has been falling for the last few years. Um, you know, the pr Prime Minister Erdogan has made himself a super president. Um, even the little symbols of it, he has built a, has built a presidential palace that is four times the size of Versailles. I mean, it, it, all, it certainly doesn't look uh, like I, a I, deepening of I, democracy. I, I will invite you <laughs> to Ankara to see with your own eyes that the presidential side, when you see that, you will see the reality. It but is, I, have is, gone is, to, I have gone to Turkey and seen the reality that there are fewer independent journalists and experts. Many of them have fled to the United States or to the West. That's, 
You know this is true. This is, this is related with this uh, Gulen organization. Again, more than 40 years, these people, they, you know, uh, insert in the, inside the community, inside the, the army, inside the judicial system, inside bureaucracy, and uh, civil society and business community. So they, their aim to, uh, you know, remove our government and that take over the power of the, uh, the country and rule the country. Mr. Prime Minister, pleasure to have you on. This is Fareed Zakaria back here on GPS. Thanks to all of the guests who joined me on the show today. And thank you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.